Welcome to the hills. I know I'm talking to a lot of people that are watching online. I even met this morning after our first service a family from uh, Illinois who are regular online worshipers on vacation and dropped by. So wherever you are, uh, thank you for joining us. I know I'm also giving a shout out to South Lake and West Fort Worth campuses. I hope you're enjoying this beautiful Sunday morning like we are here at the North Richland Hills campus. So it's March Madness, or as I like to call it, the annual reminder that I do not have the gift of prophecy. Because we're only three days in, and my bracket is blown up. But I don't need the gift of prophecy to know for certain some things that are in the future. One is that by 2050, uh, whites will no longer be a majority in the United States of America. There will be no single race of people in this country that will be over 50%. It will happen much sooner than that in the state of Texas. It is already true in Tarrant County. So I said last time uh, in this series, Why Talk About Race, that I have an agenda for this series, and that is to get us as a church to embrace and embody God's dream of using the multi-ethnic church as a witness to His saving, reconciling, and redeeming grace. It's not easy to be a multi-ethnic church, but it is so much better. In many respects, I just want us to start to pursue intentionally, locally, what we have for years been pursuing globally. We support 27 missionary families at our church. Only three of those missionaries work with primarily white people groups. Uh, Our 27th family we sent this last year were the Lowry's to Thessaloniki, Greece to work with Middle Eastern refugees. Let me show you this picture. This is Josh leading a Bible study of 15 Iranian refugees fleeing for their lives. Some believe in Jesus, most do not. Why would they be at that table? Why would they be at a table with a man from a different country who spoke a different tongue, who served a Jesus they were taught not to believe was the Son of God. Why would they be at that table? See, the reality is the world gives us all a narrative of us and them, and we don't trust them, we fear them, therefore we're allowed to hate them. Paul talked about it in Titus. He said, this is the world without Christ. People hated us, we hated each other. This is a world that would rather build walls then build bridges. What were they doing at the table? And the answer is, when people witness reconciliation among brothers, they are open to a message about reconciliation with the Father. In other words, unity preaches. And Jesus said it would. He said it was our greatest apologetic. The night before he died, he prayed this prayer over us in John 17, 23. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Do you hear what Jesus prayed? That we will practice such unity in the body of Christ that people will believe in the identity of Christ. That they will come to believe that God really loves them because they see our love for each other. In a world that has been corrupted and polluted by racism and classism and sexism, we know that Jesus is the answer. But here's the key. That people are one 
to him when they see that his disciples are one in him. Now, it's very essential to remember something. The mission is not racial unity. Racial unity is essential for the mission. The mission is to make and grow followers of Jesus. And racial unity is indispensable to our obedience to our mission. When the mission matters, differences do not. Now, I've been getting emails from so many people during this series And so many of you have been transparent, talking about your own journey away from racial bias. And two things have come through a lot. One is, sports changed me. That being on a ball field or a court with people of other races, where the bigger mission to win was more important than our differences, it caused me to look at people differently. And the other theme I've gotten over and over is, what changed my thinking was the military. And being in the military, serving with people of other ethnicities, taught me things I would not have learned otherwise. And it reminded me of a book that tells about Carl Melantis. And Carl grew up on the coast of Oregon. He was only around white people all his life until he joined the Marines. He was a lieutenant serving in Vietnam. He said there was in his platoon an 18-year-old Hispanic boy from Texas named Ray DeGato. He got a care package from his mother, homemade tamales. He said, Lieutenant, would you like to try one of my mama's tamales? So he tried it, and Ray Ray said, what would you think? He said, well, it was really, really hard to chew. Ray said, Lieutenant, you're supposed to take it out of the corn husk first, okay? But he went on to say, when you are in conflict, when you're under fire, when people are shooting at you, you really don't care what the color is of the people around you that are on your side trying to help you stay alive. He said many of us had our first real experience with racial difference in that conflict. And thousands of us came home with new ideas about race. Some for the worse, but most for the better. It is essential to the mission. And that's why every week I've given you a prayer for this series. The first week, God, what do you want to say to me in this series? I hope you've been praying that. Second week, that we'll be a church that preaches the full gospel. Well, here's the prayer I want you to pray this week. That we will be a congregation that practices such unity among different ages, classes, and races. That many people who are currently far from God will found salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ, because of our witness. That's what I want you to pray. And now let me show you what that looks like. So, Acts chapter 11. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the Word of God, but only to Jews. However... Some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Serene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. So you have an evangelistic explosion in Antioch. Why? Because their unity was their witness. Okay, this is the first recorded instance 
of Christians building the kind of bridge it was going to take to fulfill Jesus' global mission. Because Jesus said, go make disciples of every ethnic group. And it started in Antioch. Now, historians have shown us that Antioch, like most cities back then, was very ethnically divided. In fact, there were 18 separate quarters of town where people lived based on their ethnicity and on their social status. So here are these Christians who show up. They're unintentional missionaries driven out of their town by persecution. But they've got this new belief in Jesus. And they start talking. And as they get away from Jerusalem, they start taking some of the Jewish wrapping off of the gospel. And they just start talking to everybody. And they start thinking, if they believe in the same Jesus, then why aren't we sitting at the same table? And this had never happened before. So word of it got out. It always does. It says, verse 22, when the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, that there were Christians in Antioch meeting across racial lines doing Jesus together. When they heard that, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. Okay, now that's twice in six verses that the Holy Spirit told Dr. Luke to make sure you notice that people are getting saved. That there's a huge evangelistic harvest going on in this town because your unity is a witness. And so Barnabas shows up and he's never seen this before. But he can't help but notice God is all over this. In fact, Dr. King rightly noted the most segregated period of time in America today is on Sunday when Christians gather to worship Jesus. In Antioch, the most integrated time of the whole week was when Christians gathered on Sunday to worship Jesus. It says in verse 26, it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. So Barnabas goes and gets this guy named Saul, and he brings him to Antioch, and that's not a coincidence. You see, God's plan was Saul, we call him Paul, to become a church planter. So God didn't send him to Jerusalem for training. God sent him to Antioch. Why? Because Antioch was the church God wanted planted all over the world. Not Jerusalem. Not the monoracial church. God wanted multi-ethnic churches planted all over the Roman Empire. So that's where Paul got trained. In fact, it says in chapter 13, Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, that's Africa, Manaean, childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I've called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. God said, Antioch is the church I want spread across the empire. And do you notice how Luke intentionally highlighted the ethnic diversity of the leadership in Antioch? We know at least two of the leaders were black men. At least two were Jewish men. At least one of the men grew up in high status in Herod's palace, okay? A very ethnically and 
socioeconomically diverse leadership. Because Christianity has never belonged to one ethnic group more than to any other. In fact, one of the reasons I argue that Christianity is the true faith is that it's so different from other world religions in that it does not have a center. Now, here's what I mean. Where did Buddhism start in the Far East? Where's the center of Buddhism today? The Far East. Where did Islam start? The Middle East. And where's the center of Islam today? The Middle East. Where did Hinduism start? In India. Where's the center of Hinduism today? It's in India. Where's the center of Christianity? Now, it was birthed in Jerusalem, but it didn't stay there long. The center for the first several hundred years was Africa. And for the first several hundred years, all the great church fathers and writers and theologians were Africans. And then the center moved to Europe and was there for a long time. Then it moved to America. Today, the center of the Christianity has moved to Africa, where there are more Christians than any other place in the world. But very soon, it looks like the center is going to move back to Asia and especially to China. You see what's happening? The center of Christianity is always on pilgrimage because Christianity doesn't have a home team. In Christianity, everybody gets to find a home. Are y'all listening to me? The other two services gave me a little more energy than you guys are giving me. So either you're thinking really, really hard or you're not listening, okay? You see, what I'm saying to you is that the world had never seen anything like what was happening in Antioch. That's what God wants. The multi-ethnic church will always be better. But it will never be easy. You see, this unity is a process. Overcoming racial bigotry is a decision, but it's also a journey. Let me show you that by using Peter as an example. He's asleep. He has a vision, a sheet with many animals, many unclean. God says, rise, kill, and eat. He says, no, I don't do that. Don't be telling God no. When he tells you to do something. So, there's a knock on the door. He's called to this house full of Gentiles. And it dawns on Peter what God is trying to tell him. And he makes this amazing statement. In Acts 10. I really understand now that to God, every person is the same. So he starts to preach. And the Holy Spirit falls right in the middle of his sermon, which preachers hate it when that happens, okay? And he says, well, what am I waiting for? How can we not just baptize all these people? So they have baptism weekend right there at the house. And the next chapter, Peter got called on the carpet by the church in Jerusalem. Not for baptizing people of a different ethnicity, but for eating with them. And that is still the problem. I've never met a Christian who says all races can't get into heaven. But I've met a lot who hope other races don't get in their church. And so, separate but equal has been the lie we have lived with for centuries. Galatians chapter 2. But when Peter came to Antioch, 
Paul says, I had to oppose him to his face. For what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Okay, now I just need to say, aren't you thankful that the Holy Spirit didn't write down your worst moment and put it in the Bible for everybody years later to talk about? Okay? Because we all have our unadmitted and even our unconscious biases. See, Peter spoke the truth. I believe everybody is the same to God. But life is going to put you in a place where you've got to decide, am I going to live what I spoke and said I believe? And in that moment, deep inside you, stuff surfaces that you didn't even know was there. And I'm sure Peter tried to justify his action. Hey, I'm just trying to keep the peace. Peace is a good thing. There's going to be so much drama if we try to get the races at the same table. So, so I'll just eat over here with all the Jews and the Gentiles. They can eat over there. I mean, we all love Jesus, right? Now, I love peace. But you don't ever pursue peace at the expense of truth. And Paul understood that what Peter was subtly implying to the people of the other ethnicities was, oh, you can be a Christian, but you'll always be a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Look what Paul says, verse 14. I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message. That's what I tried to say last week. It's about the gospel. Racism is legalism. The question you always have to ask is, how do we understand the gospel? And if you attempt to base how you're going to accept somebody on any ethnic or cultural basis, you are subtly denying the full sufficiency of the cross of Jesus. And so... Paul got in Peter's face about grace. Now, it's worth noting, he did not go behind Peter's back and get on Facebook and post what a bad guy he was. He went to Peter, got right in his face, and said, we got to talk about the gospel. Because there are going to be times when you have to give voice to your witness. It was January the 1st, 1863, William Seward, Secretary of State, walked into the Oval Office and put a piece of paper on the desk. President Lincoln picked up a pen to sign it and put it back down. A moment later, he picked up the pen again, put it back down. Seward was confused. Lincoln explained, I've been shaking hands all day for three hours. My hand is numb. I can't feel it. If I try to sign this now, my signature will be shaky. And years later, people will look at it and say, He signed it, but his heart wasn't in it. The document we're talking about was the Emancipation Proclamation. 
So Lincoln waited until there was feeling in his hand, and then boldly and firmly he signed the document that said all are created equal and should be free. And there's going to come a moment in your life where you're going to be in a situation where what you say that all people are equal before God is going to get tested. And you're going to have to make a witness. And can I speak especially to my white brothers and sisters right now? I think for many of us, we've set the bar too low. And the bar has been, well, I'm not making it worse. I didn't own a slave. I don't use the N-word. There's an immigrant family moved to the neighborhood. I don't have a problem with that. My, my kids play on a soccer team with some black kids. I'm cool. Is that the standard for following Jesus? When the priest and the Levite walked down the road and saw the man mugged in the ditch... They could have said, I didn't put him there. That's not my fault. I'm not making it worse. But it seems to me the standard for a follower of Jesus is not, I didn't make it worse. It is, what can I do in the power of the Holy Spirit to make things better? That's the standard. And we're going to talk about that before this series is over. What can we do to make it better? But it starts, it starts with, how can I be better? And that's why I asked you at the very start to pray, Lord, what do you want to say to me? I've gotten a lot of feedback. One middle-aged white man wrote me, I cannot change the past and how my perceptions were shaped. My experiences cannot be taken back. But what I can do now is ask God to change me more into His image. You see, we're all on this journey, and we all have the same need. See, our unity has a basis. All people share this in common. We are all infected with sin, and we cannot cure ourselves. Now, I'll tell you another place beside the ball field or the military where you recognize a true democracy. It's a cancer ward. And some of you have been there. You pull your car into that sterile, cold parking garage. You make that long walk to the elevator with that manila folder full of lab reports that you can't really understand. Today's the day you're starting chemo or radiation. You walk into that room and you see it's full of other people. There's an old Jewish man and a young Muslim girl. There's a redneck and a goth. A Republican and Democrat, rich and poor. And you have one thing in common. We've all got cancer. And if just one person in that room gets good news, it's, it's a time for everyone to rejoice. Because we're all infected with a disease that we cannot cure. And that's how people should feel when they walk in the church. That there's a cure that can save anyone. 
the blood of Jesus. And if we look to the cross for our salvation, it must change the way we look at every single person. And Paul talks about that. He says, Christ died for all. And this love now compels us. He says, we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to Himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to Him. You see what He's saying? That because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross, the old paradigms that culture taught me about how to look at people and how to frame people and how to separate people, they don't apply anymore. They just don't apply. What matters now is simply this. Do they know Jesus? I look at everyone through the lens of Jesus. And everyone I meet either knows Jesus or needs Jesus. And if you're in the body of Christ, there is no longer us and them. They're just us who've been washed in the blood and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. For followers of Jesus, water is thicker than blood. All of us who have entered into the baptismal waters and united with his death and resurrection have come up new creations and our new family now are those who are also in Christ. Paul talks about that in Galatians 3. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus and all who've been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. I told you. I told you that unity preaches. And now Paul is saying, baptism preaches unity. Baptism is the church's public rebuke of racism. They're no longer Jew or Greek. It's our public repudiation of classism. They're no longer slave or free. It's our public rejection of sexism. They're no longer male and female. Through baptism, we give a witness to the world that anyone can enter the water and everyone can sit with us at the table. I read uh, some years ago a story I still remember during the Civil War. The North was on one side and the South on the other side of the Rapidan River in Virginia. And everyone knew the next day was going to be horrific. There was a Confederate soldier who needed to make things right with the Lord. Asked some friends to take him down to that river and baptize him in full view of the Northern Army. So they walked down and when some Northern soldiers saw what was happening, they came down. And so you got Northern and soldier soldiers on both sides of the river to encourage this man who wants to get baptized. And they started to sing a song that both sides knew. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And for just one powerful moment, baptism was a witness that Jesus is the answer to the hate. 
that Jesus is the answer to the walls. And the world needs our witness to this. So I want us to pray about it. So bow please with me. And so God, that is our prayer. It's bold, it's big, and it's beautiful. That exactly what Jesus asks for will happen here. That our unity as a church here in Tarrant County will be so profound, it will transcend class, gender, and race. And people who are far from you, God, will see what's happening here. And they will be open to reconciliation with you because they witness reconciliation among us. That's what I ask for, God. That many will come to Christ because the body of Christ is who Jesus prayed she would be. And in His powerful name, I ask for this. Amen. So let me ask you all to stand. And here's the deal. I was asked, why would you have a baptism weekend in the middle of a series on race? And my answer is, it's the perfect time. Because baptism publicly testifies to the very truths I'm trying to preach. And so today, I'm going to ask you to come get baptized. Many have already come in the first two services. And and you might be thinking, well, I was baptized when I was a baby. My parents took me. That's a beautiful thing. Your parents were dedicating you to the Lord. But the thing is, your walk with Jesus has to be your decision. Nobody can be a disciple for you. You need to publicly declare that you want to follow Jesus. I understand that some people are afraid of water. That's why I've asked David Meyer and Ryan Young to get in the baptistry. biggest white man and biggest black man in this church. (laughs) Nobody's going to drown today, I promise. And the truth of the matter is, deciding that my love for Jesus is greater than my fear is part of discipleship. And if it would mean something special to you for me to baptize you, you just come up here and let me know. I'll do that. I think for a lot of you, the struggle is this. I have really screwed up. Let me get my life together. And then I'll come follow Jesus. You got it backward, friend. You come follow Jesus, and He will help you get your life together. Jesus came for sinners. There's only one reason I would tell anyone not to get baptized. And that's if you don't want to follow Jesus. If you just want to give lip service to a ritual, don't do that. No. But I don't care where you are, what you've done, where you've been. If you're ready for a new life, I beg you, right now, this is your time. And the world needs your witness. Come get baptized. We've got the towels. We've got the people. We've got the music. This is your moment. Obey the Spirit. Please come.